There are very few Sundays when I find myself getting up to preach and finding myself wondering, Lord, do I have anything to give? But there are those times, those weeks, those periods that we go through, I think, where we get stretched, we get pulled, and congregation, I want you to know we're, we're living in one of those periods right now, at least I am as your pastor. Um, there's so much illness, there's so many hurting people. Friday evening, um, one of our dear saints went home to be with Jesus, Billy Crossland. And Billy had been such a vital part of our church. Amy Cunningham's mom, Amy missing from her normal spot down here as she's with her family. And Tuesday morning, we're going to be having a memorial service here for her and celebrating her life with them uh, before they proceed on to Texas where they'll have a graveside service and lay her to rest next to her husband. Time in the hospital, time watching people, praying with people, trying to care for people, sometimes just kind of makes you feel a little stretched thin and empty. And you know, I, I, I got to thinking about that, but then this morning as I was getting up and looking over what God had given me to share with you today, I thought, you know, it's kind of appropriate. It's kind of appropriate that we're going to look at Jesus in the wilderness, emptied out, and facing a time of danger at the hands of the enemy. So I'm going to invite you to do something for me this morning as we begin. And it's just a real simple thing. I'm going to invite you, if you would, would you just pray with me right now? Father, we are so thankful that in the times when we feel empty, you're there to fill us. That we know that in our weakness, you're strong. Father, this morning, I I pray for our congregation, for our family of faith. Knowing that there are so many who are battling today. Death has come calling and it's impacted our family. Disease has taken its toll. There are those who are battling to find their way to health through flus and RSV and pneumonia and so many various ailments. Father, we're reminded of the frailty of our bodies. And it's a reminder to us that this life is temporary. It's certainly not all we have and it certainly is not the best that is for us. And so today, as we come to this time of opening your word, I I pray, Father, you hide me behind the cross. That you would give what's needed. That you would reveal the truth to us through your word and through your son. And that you would draw us to you. Father, in these moments, I pray that you would be glorified and set your people free spiritually and mentally to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, we're going to look in Luke chapter 4. I know that there are other accounts of the temptation of Jesus, but I want us to look in Luke chapter 4. And I just want you to kind of know what's happening and where this is taking us. I had a conversation with someone a while back, and they made the statement to me. He said, you know, I, I really don't feel like I need know Jesus like I ought to. And this was one of my siblings in Christ, and I, I found myself thinking, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't know Jesus? And they said, you know, we read the gospel accounts, but we never really stop and think about who is this man? What was his life really about? What was it really like? What did he really experience? What did he really go through? Sometimes, and you know, as I listened, I thought, they're right. Sometimes we read through and we're so familiar with what we're reading that we don't stop and really let it soak into us what our Lord experienced when he left glory, put on flesh, and became one of us. And so over the next several months... As we are headed toward Easter, we're going to be looking each week at a snapshot out of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, what better place to begin than at the beginning? And so today we're going to look at the temptation that Jesus was confronted with in the wilderness after his baptism. Now, I know, listen, as I was talking, I started visiting with people about this series of sermons that I was kind of conjuring up in my mind several months ago, and I started asking some other pastors, and you know, some of the things that came up and some of the questions that were asked and some of the discussions that took place and some of the theories that were proposed blew my mind, particularly in regard to this. Did Satan actually appear? Did this all just happen in Jesus' head? Well, you know, to me, I have no problem. Scripture teaches us about Lucifer. It teaches us about Satan. It teaches us about the devil. It teaches us that we have an adversary, an enemy, who is actively engaged in our lives. I have no problem believing that Satan literally did appear and throw his worst at our master out in the wilderness. Another asked me, said, do you think it's possible that Jesus actually could sin? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely he could. If he couldn't, he's not 100% human. He had to be able to sin. But because he was 100% divine, he was able to withstand the temptation and therefore become our Redeemer, our Atonement, our Savior. I love the way that this passage begins because it tells us something about Jesus that we need to be aware of. And that is that he is the fullness of God. The Son, yes. But Luke tells us he was full of the Spirit. If you've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 4, I want us to read together the first 13 verses of this chapter. The record of the temptation that Jesus underwent in the wilderness after being baptized by John the Baptist. He journeyed out into the wilderness. Let's see what it has to say. Luke chapter 4. Beginning of verse 1, if you've got your Bible open there, you can. Well, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of our Father. Here's the record that Luke gives us. He says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, 
he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you and praise you for this record. That reveals to us our Savior. The one who is mighty to save. The one who is able to face the greatest of temptations and withstand. The one who was tested in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. Father, we thank you that you give to us here an example by which we can learn, by which we can be inspired. An example that shows us that there is hope even in our sinful condition. Father, I pray now as we spend our time together in these words that you would speak to us, teach us. Across this room, Father, I, I know that there are a multitude of needs. There are many struggles. There are so many hurts, so many battles. But we know that Lord Jesus is the overcomer. I pray, Father, that today you would turn our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our eyes upon him. That we might come before him to receive the blessing of forgiveness, the strength of walking in his way. Now, Father, teach us what we need to know. Show us the way. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. It's the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. I mean, I know it's the fourth chapter, but it's still the beginning, right? It's, it's pretty early in the story. Jesus has reached adulthood. And he's come down to the Jordan. He's met John the Baptist there. John recognized him, identified him, baptized him. Jesus spent some time there, we don't know how much time, with John and, and the people who had gathered around him as well as his disciples. Some of John's disciples would become Jesus' disciples. They had worshipped together. They had celebrated the truth of God's word together. 
And now there's this question, and and I don't know that the people were asking, I don't know that John had to ask it, but I think there was this question hovering over all of eternity. What kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? Well, if you've studied the Word of God at all, you know that the crowds would seek to force him into being the kind of ruler they desired him to be. So before that temptation arrived, Jesus needed to be tested. He needed to be confronted. He needed to see those temptations face to face as they would be offered by the enemy of human flesh. And so he goes off into the wilderness, led by the Spirit. This isn't just a random thing, by the way. If you're wondering what that means in verse 1 when it tells us that he was led around by the Spirit, this wasn't just a random happening. This was part of God's plan and design for the life of Jesus and helping him to establish who he was going to be. But the thing that struck me as I was looking at this passage of Scripture is that every temptation that you will ever face, every temptation that any of us will ever face, any temptation that I will face is contained in these three temptations that were thrown into the face of the master. I want us to look at this. I want us to see this together this morning. Maybe it's going to speak to you with something you're dealing with, struggling with, working with. Maybe not, but I do believe it has something to teach each one of us. I want us to look and see how Jesus was tempted. I want you to keep your Bible open here, Luke chapter 4. We're not going anywhere else. This is where we're going to work. So stay right here with me in Luke chapter 4, if you will, as we see the temptations Jesus faced. First, there was the temptation to satisfy the flesh. This is what we find in verses 3 and 4. The 40 days has come to an end. I love the way that it says this. When the 40 days had ended, he became hungry. Folks, I'm just going to tell you, I'd be hungry before 40 days. And I think most of us would. We're not used to going 40 days without eating. And when I say that he was tempted to satisfy the flesh, I think Jesus already had a pretty good handle on this or he wouldn't have made it to 40 days. But he was in a weakened state, and now he's hungry. There's a longing, there's a yearning in his flesh to be filled, to be satisfied, to be fed. Jesus learned to master the flesh. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. By the way, if you ever go out in the Judean wilderness, there is no shortage of stones. And many of those stones, if you'll pick one up and look at it, it's almost like looking at a loaf of bread, a a small individual fist-sized loaf of bread. It's not a loaf of bread like you'd find at Walmart, uh, nicely wrapped, but like would have been made in many homes and homemade ovens of that day. Now, I just got to ask you a question. Any of y'all ever driven by a bakery when they're doing their work? Oh, my word. Your car will stop of its own volition. You don't even have to touch the button. The windows will go down. And your nose will sit there and run out into the air to absorb all of the smell of that baking bread. Listen, there was a bakery in my hometown, and it wasn't but about five, six blocks from where I lived. And when they started baking bread, I would wake up in the middle of the night 
Especially in summertime when the windows were open and that smell would come wafting into the house. I mean to tell you, I knew either they were baking bread or my mama had found Jesus, one of the two. Because it smelled so good, it made you just want to jump out of bed and go grab it and stuff it in your face. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And when Satan says, if you are who you say you are, you've got the power to do this, why not just turn this stone into bread? Don't you know that in that instant, that smell began to... Do any of y'all ever identify smells with taste? When I smell bread, I know exactly what it's going to taste like. I know what it's going to feel like when I bite into that warm bread. I feel it with my teeth. I sense it in my mouth. I smell it with my nose. The only thing that it doesn't do is fill my stomach. Got to actually bite it to do that. Forty days, he becomes hungry. The temptation comes. Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. What had been going on for 40 days? He just hanging out. Laying on rocks, dumping sand out of a sandal? No. L- let me tell you what had been going on for 40 days. For 40 days, there had been a communing with the Father. There had been times of prayer. There had been times of faith. I don't know exactly what all was involved in it, but I'm telling you right now, there had been a fellowship between father and son that was occurring in that time that was preparing him for what was coming. And at the end of that 40 days, hunger strikes. Now, let me just tell you something about hunger right up front, and I want you to hear me. Hunger is amoral. It is not good. It is not bad. It just is, all right? But the way that people choose to satisfy their hunger, their physical cravings, that's what determines whether they will sin against God or not. Now, in this particular account, we have the record of the temptation being about bread, but I want you to understand that it's not about bread. It's about physical desire. That which will satisfy you physically. Now, Satan's suggestion seemed simple, didn't it? Eh, just tell it to be bread and you can have something to eat and everything. Nobody will know. Just go on your way. Everything will be good. But Jesus heard that invitation and saw it as bait. Why? Because he had come to be the God-man. If he utilized his power as God to satisfy his need as a man, he was doing what no other man could do. It would have made him something more than us rather than allowing him to be like us. He couldn't separate himself from his burdens by using his power as God. And so he answers Satan with words that are already Given It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We don't have to have that because we've got this. Now, I want to tell you something. We all need to learn to master our flesh. Jesus did. We need to. 
All of us face temptations of the flesh every day. Now, obviously, I look around this room. For most of us, it's not, it doesn't have to do with hunger, okay? It doesn't have to do with the fact that we haven't eaten adequately in the last day or week or month, whatever. But we have temptations of the flesh, passions that drive us, that things that we desire. Listen, in our culture, we can talk about sexual desires and sexual cravings because it's all over the place in front of us. It's in the television. It's in the media. It's, it's in your movies. It's everywhere you want to look, if possible. It drives our culture. We might discuss those, those desires for pleasure that come from, from drugs or from alcohol or the lessening of inhibitions that comes with that. The ability to, to worry less or the, the, the way we can come to the place where we just don't care about things. And, and pains can be lessened by substance abuse. All of these things, I want you to understand, if, if it's a sexual desire that's, that's driving you, please understand, God has already given you a way to meet your sexual desires. He has outlined what is proper and what is right, and He has told us what is wrong and unacceptable. If it has to do with substances and substance abuse, do you know God's Word is so, so clear on this? If you haven't done so before, this is one of those for you note takers. Go home and read Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, the entire chapter. Because, you see, Proverbs 23 was written to explain the dangers of giving in to temptations of the flesh. It, it talks about gluttony. It talks about sexual immorality. It discusses substance abuse. And, and it describes the end of pursuing these things by saying, at the last it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Basically, that's saying, it ain't good where it takes you. Any physical drive that is allowed to run unchecked will threaten your future. It can undo you. Fleshly desires are real. By the way, I just want you to know something. If you have fleshly desires, don't get down on yourself. We all do. You know why? Because we're flesh. That's how God made us. And the desires that we have are desires that come from Him. But our fleshly desires need to be satisfied with inside of God's spiritual principles and precepts. Now, having said all of that, let me take you to the second temptation Jesus faced. It's found in verses 5 through 8, and it is the temptation to claim the material. Jesus was tempted to lust after material gain. That's, that's what we find here. Satan, verse 5, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how in the world he did that, but can't, that's got to be an amazing thing, don't you think? I mean, he's there on that high place, and he looks, and Satan reveals to him all the kingdoms of all the world. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. So you don't just get the kingdoms, you get all the stuff that goes with it. All the glory, all the gold, all the silver, all the wealth, everything that comes with these kingdoms, it's yours. How could Satan do that? 
Verse 6, he said, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, here's the catch. You just have to do one thing. If you'll worship before me, if you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's the lust of the eye. Have you ever noticed how before you want something, you see it? I have people tell me about something, and I just, okay, cool, whatever. It means nothing. But man, when I see it, oh, whoa. Wow. You know, it, it's kind of, I'm going to pick on Ed Tennyson. You know, I can tell Ed Tennyson about some new driver that's come out. And he really couldn't care less because he's got golf clubs and he's got good golf clubs and he knows how to use his golf clubs and he's comfortable with his golf clubs. He really doesn't care anything about it. But if I walk into his house with that new driver and I show him that driver and I let him feel the grip of that driver and then we say, hey, let's go out in the backyard and you can hit one across the fairway with it. Everything changes, doesn't it, Ed? He's going to walk in back in the house he's going to look at Deanna and say, oh. I got to have that driver. It's the lust of the eye. Is it, the words don't do it justice, but, but, but touching it and, and handling it and, and being there, that changes everything. It's kind of how it is with all of us, folks. You, you see, we're okay hearing about something, but whenever all of a sudden it's right there in front of us, maybe there's an opportunity. The lust of the eye takes over. And now I want you to understand something. God knew this about us. He, he understands our wiring and he understands our temptations and he understands our sin. And, and you say, well, I'm not sure he understands exactly what I'm feeling and going through. Let me explain to you. He does. And if you need proof, here's your proof. Exodus chapter 20. Anybody want to tell me what Exodus chapter 20 is, children? That's a key passage. Come on. What's Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments, yeah. Okay, in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 15, listen to what God said. Simple, most of y'all know this. You shall not steal. Okay, got that. Easy, no big deal. I don't have a problem, Pastor. Oh, God's not through with you yet. Exodus chapter 20, drop down and look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Or your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I just want to ask you a question. If you want something, if you desire something, if you're chasing after something and you don't possess it, somebody else owns it, don't they? Yeah, they do. Now, they may be trying to sell it to you. They may be ready to, to dispose of it, and, and maybe you're seeking that window of opportunity. Make it a line, friends, because if you don't, you're coveting something that belongs to someone else. And I want you to understand, Jesus looked at this temptation, and he saw it for what it was. In order to gain all of this stuff, 
meant that he would have to worship the material. And if you worship the material, you worship the one who gives it to you. And here's Satan saying, I can give you all of this because it's been entrusted to me and I can give it to anybody I want to. Here's the only thing you've got to do, Jesus. Worship me. If he had worshipped Satan, he would be no savior. If he had worshipped Satan, he would be so much less than the precious Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now it's easy to talk about that with Jesus, but let's get personal, all right? We are constantly tempted to lust after material gain. The world is always promoting the idea, the concept that you can't have a happy, fulfilled, satisfying life unless you live in the big house and have a fat wallet and overflowing bank accounts and and, and you're living life going to the beach a couple of times a year and and, and you got all the fancy cars and all the fancy stuff. And I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with having any of those things if God blesses you with those things. But when you make the whole purpose of your life pursuing and chasing and capturing and holding and owning those things, you've lost your way. How much do we invest in seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness? How how much of what we gain of the world's wealth are we willing to convert into kingdom currency? By investing in God's work. What are you trusting for your future? Is it a paper portfolio or a king on the throne? Listen, I'm not in any way encouraging foolishness or ignorance. But let's keep our eye on what's real here. Because you see, even Jesus told us that all these things that that we place our trust in, thieves can come. Corrosion can come. The moth can even get in there and do his damage. But Jesus, that doesn't go away. The things of the kingdom of God are the things that are going to last How do your priorities, my priorities, align with God's priorities today? What do they reveal about how much we trust Him and how much we're falling into His arms every day? You see, whenever I read this temptation, I realize that Jesus was tempted to want all the stuff. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. We all want some of the stuff. We're wired that way. But if we let that become our driving purpose, we will fail miserably in life. And when we reach the end, we'll discover a simple truth. No matter what we have, we can't take it with us. And if we did not invest it wisely in God's plans, it's all going to be lost. It'll be for nothing. See, I was reading this passage and I found out there's a third temptation. And I want to tell you about this third temptation and I want you to really pay attention to this one because I think this is the most intense of all. 
And there's a reason why I'm going to tell you that. But in order to do it, we need to go back and we need to read this third temptation. See, the third temptation was the temptation for Jesus to feed his ego. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Let's go back and look. You, you got your Bible open? Pick this up with me at verse 9. He led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, this is the third time he's asked that, if you are. Now, I just want you to know something right up front. Satan knew good and well who Jesus was. This whole thing wouldn't be happening if he knew if he thought that Jesus wasn't, in fact, the Son of God. He knew that he was the Son of God. He's trying to trip him up. He's trying to bring him to fear. He's trying to derail the plans of God before they ever really get started. But he every time says it this way, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. It's like, if you're a believer, do something really stupid and see if God will deliver you. If you are the Son of God, They're on the pinnacle of the temple. It's the highest spot in the area. There's nothing above him except sky. There is nothing below him but stone upon which he can be dashed. And look at what Satan did next. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. He took the word of God and he twisted it to try to validate his point. Friends, I want to tell you something. You better be really, really careful when someone takes the word of God and tries to twist it to get you to do something. That's Satan's trick. That's what Satan... Yeah, that was written. It really is. It's in the Word of God. But that's not what it means. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He had tried everything he knew. He had tempted Jesus in regard to the flesh, in regard to material things, in regard to his ego. Now, some of y'all are saying, what do you mean by his ego? If Jesus had jumped from the pinnacle of the temple, I don't know what would have happened. None of us do, do we? Because he didn't do it. Maybe God the Father would have said, oh, well, splat. Maybe the angels would have come up and borne him so that his foot would never strike a single stone. But the plan of redemption would have been derailed in that moment. If he did it and the angels picked him up and carried him away from any possible harm, can you imagine the sound of the crowd below? There he is. Look how awesome he is. This guy's outstanding. He's incredible. He jumped and he didn't even fall and go splat on the ground. God delivered him. He must be someone important. He must be someone special. And they would have had all these great things to say about Jesus. It would have fed his egos, no doubt. Don't you love it when people say good things about you? Oh, come on, people. You got to be a little more honest than that. Students, when y'all go to school and you're given a test, I know that all of you look at that piece of paper and say, my goal today 
is to be as average as I can be. Now, with some of you, that's totally true because that's an improvement. But the reality is most of you are looking at it and saying, I'm going to burn this sucker down. I'm going to own this. I'm going to pass this thing with flying because I'm not going to have to listen to my mama and daddy gripe about my grades anymore. But while y'all are all sitting there looking at the students saying, I want to see who's saying what over there. I want you to listen to me. You love it whenever your boss comes in and says, man, that was an awesome job. You did great on that presentation. That stuff we just rolled out, I've been getting so much response on that. You've done an awesome job. I appreciate that so much more than you could ever imagine. There's going to be a little something extra on your checks at the end of the year. There's going to be a bonus. Oh, yeah. It's good for the ego, isn't it? Sure it is. We love it when people, ladies, don't you love it when you walk out and your husband says, you look gorgeous today. Yeah, don't sit there and look at me like you don't care. I know better. Guys, if you think they don't care, tell them they don't. See how that goes over. Yeah, we all like to get our ego stroked a little bit. And here's Jesus being given the opportunity to get his ego stroked. Listen, we're constantly tempted. What's ego got to do anything? It's called ambition. It's called pride. And pride is where man has fallen from the very beginning. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the aging apostle coming into the later stage of his life refers to this aspect of temptation as the pride of life. This desire, this drive, this lust for recognition, for praise. Maybe this is sometimes the most subtle temptation that any of us face. It's not enough just to be sheltered and fed. We want to be looked up to. We want to be respected. We want to be held in high esteem. We want to be lavished with words of praise. And if we're not careful, it becomes easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons or the right things with the wrong motives. We have to guard our hearts. How do you do that? With the Word of God. Don't twist it. Don't distort it. Don't invalidate it. But know it. Every time that Jesus was tempted by Satan, he answered Satan with the Word of God. I cannot begin to say anything that will overemphasize the importance of reading, knowing and getting the Word of God inside your head and in your heart. It's how you're going to survive, friend, if you do. You're going to be tempted. We're all tempted every day. You know why we're so tempted? Because we have desires. And by the way, I want you to understand something. Look, you can look around this room, we all have the same desires. Desires of the flesh, desires for material, desires to feel good about ourselves, pride, ego. But I want you to hear something. I, years ago, I heard a preacher make a statement. I wrote it down in the back of my Bible. That Bible's retired. It's in my office on a bookshelf. But every now and again, thumbing through books, I'll come across that statement that I wrote down. It impacted me. And I, listen, I'm a few years older than I was then. 
It's been almost 40 years since I heard this statement. But it's never left my heart. Sin is when we choose to satisfy a God-given desire in a God-forbidden fashion. God gave you hunger. He gave you thirst. He gave you sexual desires. He gave you all these things of the flesh. He gave you ambition. He gave you drive. He gave you the desire to be able to go out and work and earn and make and gather and provide. He gave you a sense of pride in what you do. He gave you your ego. All of these things He has given to us, all of these things He has given us righteous ways to satisfy. But the world throws unrighteous ways at us. And when we choose to satisfy that God-given desire in a fashion that God has forbidden from us, we have chosen sin. Let me tell you one thing about Jesus. And if you're a note taker, jot this down. If you're one that has to look it up, look it up. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, leaves no doubt about this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where the writer of that letter says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus is the overcomer. Jesus is the one who walked into the wilderness, met Satan head on, was tempted with everything that could possibly be thrown at him, and yet he walked out still sinless and perfect, the Holy Lamb of God. And he has set for us an example of how to do this. Get into the Word of God. Get the Word of God into you. Let Jesus be in control of your heart and your life and your thoughts and your actions and your words. Live in fellowship with the Father. Jesus did this because he was here on the Father's business. But do you know what, brothers and sisters? We're supposed to be on the Father's business too. So what business is consuming you today? His or yours? Maybe, just maybe, some of us need to reprioritize some things in our lives. If so, I promise you this. God will show you what, and he'll show you where it goes. And if you'll be obedient you will find that there are blessings waiting you because you're going to live your life according to God's plan and purpose for you. You ready to do that? You can't do that until he's in control of your life. If you're here this morning, you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. Maybe you, you think coming to church is going to get you to heaven. It's not. You may think that I walked down an aisle one time, I shook hands with a preacher, and he prayed over me, that's going to get me to heaven. It's not. There's only one way you're going to make it into heaven, my friend. Jesus said he's it. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, you can give your heart and your life to him. And today, he will change you. He will change your destiny. He will make you a new creation. But when that happens, he expects you to allow him to prioritize your life. I pray that you'll let him have control and let him do that in your life. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation, of commitment, of surrender. Not because I want to make this service longer, but because I want you to understand that the God who made you knows everything you're going through, good and bad. He understands your temptations. He understands your struggles. He understands your success and your failure. He understands your hurts. And he stands ready to be your constant companion and guide. The question is, will you walk with him? And will you allow him to walk with you? Will you follow his leadership? Will you let him direct your paths? It begins by a surrendering of one's life, one's heart. But it continues from there. That's only the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning. Would you let him have his way this morning? Whatever it is that needs to happen, would you let him do it in your life? Father, I thank you this morning. As we look to your word, we see the record of our Lord, our Savior, face to face with the enemy. Tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Showing the power to overcome. Offering that power, that hope, that life. And offering forgiveness because of the failures we've already experienced and will continue to experience. Oh God, this morning I I pray for us in this room. I know in this room there's someone who doesn't know you. I pray you draw them to yourself. Convict them of the sin. Convince them of the Savior. Help them to understand and see that there is a better life, a more full and blessed life. Father, I know in this room there are people who are struggling, battling. Sin attacks each one of us every day. That's how the enemy comes after us. Father, today let there be a brokenness in our hearts over the sin in our lives. And I pray that we would come to you and lay that sin before you and say, Father, here it is. All my brokenness, all my sin, all my unrighteousness, I can't beat it. But you can. And so I give it to you, Father. Lord, I pray. Accomplish something great in the lives of your people here today, this morning. Lord, I I don't know how you speak to hearts. I don't know how it is that you communicate with each individual, but I know you do it. So I pray right now that you simply have your way, that you give us ears to hear, hearts that are open and receptive. And Father, help us to respond in a way that brings glory to you. If I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.